Hello, and welcome to This is Modern Rock. I'm Will Westerkow. We are listening to Modern Rock from September 1990 today, and I am joined by James from Kill Rock Stars. Hello. Hi, welcome. Thank you. Should we talk about Kill Rock Stars? Sure, yeah. It's an independent record label, uh, started in Olympia, Washington, moved to Portland about 12 years or so ago. I've been working there for about 10 years. Okay. And of course, we put out uh, Elliott Smith Records and The Decemberists and Slater Kinney and Bikini Kill and Unwound, and a whole lot of other bands. Yeah. And next month, we have a record coming out by a band called Filthy Friends, Okay. which actually has Peter Buck from R.E.M. in it, Oh wow! something that might be sure. <laughs> relevant to yeah. this show. And uh, Corn Tucker from Slater Keeney, and also Scott McConaughey from Young Fresh Fellows. All right. Yeah. And then uh, later in the month, we're reissuing a seven inch by a Portland band called Team Dresh that it was their first seven inch, and we've remastered it and we're putting it back out. Cool. Yeah. So you are the production manager? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of do a lot of things, but mainly what I do is coordinate with the bands and the artists to kind of get everything made, like collect the music, order all the records and CDs and tapes, listen to the test press, get things to where they need to go. Cool. How, how did you end up working there? I used to work at a uh, screen print shop and we mostly did business for record labels and bands. And we did some printing for Kill Rock Stars, and I was kind of the customer service, billing, accounting type person. And I worked with my boss now, and she was impressed by my customer service. <laughs> yeah, wow. All right. Yeah. And then even prior to that, I was a music journalist, and I, I wrote a lot of record reviews, and I, I reviewed basically every Kill Rock Stars album that came out okay. like in the 90s. All right. So uh, I, I think I'm just going to refresh our memories a yeah. little. In September 1990, the number one song in America was Release Me by Wilson Phillips. Oh, yeah. I remember that song. Yeah. Yep. It was followed by, the next number one was a song by Nelson. I just think that's interesting because Wilson Phillips are all daughters of, you know, an earlier generation of rock stars, and Nelson are twin sons of uh, Ricky Nelson. That's right. They had the beautiful blonde yes, hair. Yes, yes, yes. So we, we had back-to-back number ones from mm. second-generation rockers, I guess. If you want to classify them as rockers. I'm using the term loosely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> interesting time in music, for yeah. sure. And what's going on in the news? Law & Order premiered on NBC. The NC-17 rating was created. Does that feel 1990 to you? Are you back? Yeah, I was 14. 14's, I think, a good year for getting into music. And Absolutely. So for the first time on the show, we are going to be hearing four songs that hit number one. Great. So the first one is by a band called Jane's Addiction, mm -hmm. and we've featured this band before. Is this a band you're familiar with? I am, yeah. Actually, I remember when uh, Ben Caught Stealing came out, and it was really like right around the time that I became really conscious of like kind of alternative, mm -hmm. like modern rock and stuff. And I loved that Ben Caught Stealing video, and it right. kind of blew my mind. I was like, oh, this is really different. And then I eventually got a little bit more into Nothing Shocking, mm -hmm. which I think actually came out before yes. Ritual. But um, yeah, I remember Jane's Addiction well. So this is a band that was formed in L.A. in 1985. They're sometimes described as like a psychedelic alternative metal band. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about it in context of because I just watched The Dirt. And L.A. bands, they kind of have their own world that they yeah. live in. And there's something about it that can seem a little like 
vapid, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I think with Jane's Addiction, they were uh, pretty interesting. And I think that they did something pretty new where it was kind of that psychedelic and like metal twinged. I think that I appreciate them more thinking about them than listening to them at this point. Yeah. Uh, Henry Rollins has a podcast. Okay. And he was talking a lot about them, like when they toured together with like Lollapalooza and just how like epically powerful their live shows were. Mm -hmm. And I never saw them, so I don't really have that context. Right. But I imagine they, they were really something at the time. Yeah. They're interesting to me because, you know, they are kind of a metal band, but if you look at a lot of the more straightforward LA metal bands of the time, they clearly don't fit in with that. Yeah, they were kind of perfectly timed to transition from like the 80s metal to like 90s alternative rock. So yeah, they're led by Perry Farrell and he is the founder of Lollapalooza. And in fact, he was getting started with the first Lollapalooza tour right about this time because uh, the first tour, I think, started in 1991. That's right. Yeah. And he says that he remembers almost nothing about recording this album. Okay. Because he was uh, a heroin addict at the time. So Mm -hmm. it is kind of weird to me thinking about how people can make such good music and have no memory recollection of what they're actually doing. That's wild. I think it's even wilder when people write books and don't remember. Like William Burroughs apparently doesn't remember writing Naked Lunch. Really? Yeah. Huh. (laughs) Also, uh, this band features guitarist Dave Navarro, who later briefly joined the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And searching him up online, I discovered that he appeared on an episode of America's Most Wanted. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't track down the video, unfortunately. I would love to play the clip. Yeah. But anyway, we're going to hear a song called Stop. And it went to number one on the modern rock charts. It's the first single off of their album Ritual de lo Habitual, which is apparently Spanish for Ritual of the Habitual. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I don't know. Should we just listen to this thing? Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. There's so many parts to that song That's, for a pop song. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. It's it's very unusual. Yeah, and I definitely hear that metal part a lot more than I think I remembered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels heavy. It feels metal, but there's a lot of echo on everything. Yeah. Uh, not just the vocals, but the guitars are kind of swirling right. at times. Yeah, well, let's talk about the different parts. It starts with, what, almost 20 seconds of spoken word Yeah. in Spanish. It's the first track on the album. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I remember being really mystified by that when I heard it, like originally, because I didn't speak Spanish. So I was right. like, oh, I wonder what they're talking about. Yeah. Something I, about I got, Los Angeles. I got a translation. I think they're saying something like, ladies and gentlemen, we have more influence with your children than you have, but we love them. Born and raised in Los Angeles, Jane's Addiction. Oh, wow. I had no idea. I like that. Yeah. That's really nice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not totally sure what that message means, but... Well, I think it's kind of tapping into, like, the satanic panic Mm -hmm. that was happening in, like, the late 80s and 90s when, like, a lot of middle America was really paranoid that there were all these satanic cults that were, like, abusing children. And and that 
some heavy metal bands were yes. satanic themselves and yeah and even went to court in a lot of cases with like tipper gore and stuff right. like that and i lived in southern california at that time and it was huge down there i remember my dad bringing home this sheet that had all these like anarchist symbols and stuff on them like things to watch out uh-huh. there <laughs> Because he wanted to stop you from getting someone them? Had, he wanted, he someone had given them. it to okay. him. He didn't care. He, okay. He's like, being the Satan, that's cool. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So there's the spoken word intro, which, by the way, Kill Rockstars tie-in. I, I heard that Kill Rockstars began partially as a spoken word label. That's true. That's true. Yeah, which is so interesting to me. Yeah, Slim Moon, who started the label, he's just very like prolific and eclectic in the things that he does. And the first couple of uh, Seven Inches were called the Word Core series. And I think that the first release was actually a cassette. And then there was a series of Seven Inches, like one was a split between him and Kathleen Hanna, who was in yeah. Bikini Kill. Even over the years, it's been a while, but there are probably like a dozen spoken word albums on Kill Rock Stars. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. After that part of the song, you know, you got your riff, you got sing songy, shouty. Almost like a nursery rhyme. Yeah. 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 And then it goes into this tempo dropped extended breakdown section and then epic guitar solo it seems like such a weird song for the radio not just for the radio but to hit number one yeah. on the modern rock charts yeah. yeah and then there's kind of the um i don't know like a double or triple tracked acapella <laughs> almost outro yeah i don't know about that part but <laughs> <laughs> yeah what a song yeah what'd you think you are you into this um, yeah, I, I do like it. I, I don't think it's something that I would like listen to all the time now, but like at the time I really liked it. I don't know, kind of after like 94 or so, I kind of stopped listening to the radio mm-hmm. for a number of years and kind of like just went through my punk phase where I'm like, oh, I reject everything on a major label. But what's fun is kind of going back and like listening to stuff that I listened to when I was younger and seeing what I still like mm-hmm. versus what I don't. During that period, I really like wrote off Jane's Addiction and coming back to them now. It's not something I want to listen to all the time, but I'm realizing like how important of a band they were Mm -hmm. and how good they were musically. Yeah. Okay, cool. So they were number one on the modern rock charts for two non-consecutive weeks. Wow. So after, yeah, after that first week, they were replaced at number one by a band called the Railway Children. Yeah, I don't know this band. No, I wasn't familiar with this band either. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's not just me. No, and, and this happens sometimes. Uh, we come across these bands, and it's hard to get information on them, even with the internet. You wow, know? even being a number one. Yeah, wow. yeah. So I have, you know, I have a little information. They, they started in England in 1984. They signed to Factory Records at first, but they moved on to Virgin, actually, for subsequent releases. They broke up in 1992. Okay. And I don't have too much more on them other than that. Okay. But we're going to listen to a song from their third album, which is called Native Place. It is, from what I understand, a little more polished and less indie than their previous releases. But this song is called Every Beat of the Heart, and it is their biggest hit. One week at number one on the modern rock charts before Stop regained its top spot for a week. Okay. I guess I should also mention this reached number 24 on the UK charts. So, reasonable hit. Yeah, yep. for sure. Yep. At the time, they must have been really into the song. Yeah, but uh, not a song I knew. So yeah, weird. Here okay. we go. Let's hear it. Every Beat of the Heart by the Railway Children. I think I can control my need But you're so precious when you leave Don't demonstrate It's life or death in front 
Every beat of the heart. <laughs> After listening to that Jane's Addiction song, it just seems so like tranquil uh-huh. and like it doesn't really get going. Tranquil's no. a good, yeah, yeah, it's a tranquilizer of a song. I mean, it sounds good, and his voice sounds good, and the lyrics seem like they're okay. Uh huh. I didn't hate it, yeah. but I can see why it hasn't like stood the ages. R- right? Yeah. yeah. I honestly like the first five times I listened to it, I was like. I do not like this, and this is the worst song I've come across so far on the charts. <laughs> okay. I mean, not on the charts, but the worst one that's like hit number one. Yeah. It really reminds me of when we get to like the mid-90s, mm-hmm. and I was used to listening to Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains, whatever, like heavier stuff, and then yeah. all of a sudden I'm hearing Hootie and the Blowfish exactly. and Sister Hazel. And it's not to say that stuff is necessarily horrible, but it's wimpier than I wanted, mm-hmm. and it seems... I don't know, insubstantial. Yeah. It's funny that that Jane's Addiction song was number one, and mm-hmm. then that song was. It was almost like, wait, what were we thinking? Yeah, like, we were moving in this direction and that. It's like there's two warring factions of radio listeners, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's a horrible song. I, it's grown on me a little bit. It's pleasant enough. Like, it comes on, I'm just like, yeah, that's kind of soothing, but it's not really what I want to listen to. Yeah, you're not going to put it on a hot mix. No, no. <laughs> Uh, would I put it on a cold mix? <laughs> Maybe. I'm not sure. Breakup mix. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was our, our second number one of the month. And then we have a new number one, and it is by the band In Excess. Yes. You like In Excess? I, yes. Particularly the album Kick. I, mm-hmm. I loved it at the time, and I still love it. Yeah. Kick's pretty good. Yeah. I was looking at it, and like, there's a couple of songs on there that are a bit clunky, but seven out of 10 songs or whatever. The ones that are good are, are really good. Yeah. Yeah. Good album cover, too. Great album cover. The videos were good. They had that like Bob Dylan tribute, probably mm-hmm. what you'd call. And they like put those two songs together, which I thought was really interesting how they would even play that on the radio, like those two songs, yeah. which seems unusual. Right. Yeah. I wish that I would have gotten to see them. Yeah. yeah. So I was surprised to see In Excess hitting number one on the charts because 1990 feels a little bit late for them, yeah. for me, but here they are. And it's a song that I was not familiar with. So the song we're going to hear is called... It's called Suicide Blonde. Oh, yes. Yeah, I remember this song. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. A little about In Excess before we listen to it. That band was formed in 1977. Whoa. Yeah, way wow. back. Okay. As a, a lot of bands formed in 77. Yes. Yeah. I knew that. <laughs> um, as the, the Ferris Brothers, apparently three-sixths or one-half for you math people out there, uh, half of the band was Ferris Brothers. Oh. Formed in Sydney, Australia. Okay. And uh, they began as a new wave band early on, but they eventually turned into more of a rock band with some funk and dance elements. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were led by Michael Hutchins. And uh, we can talk more about Michael Hutchins maybe after we listen to the song. Yeah, Yeah. sounds good. But in 1990, they released their seventh studio album, X. This was their follow-up to Kick, which featured a lot of the band's best-known songs. Yeah, I bet. X was successful, but not nearly as successful as Kick. And fun side fact, a number of songs on X feature the harmonica playing of Charlie Musselwhite, a blues musician who was supposedly the inspiration for Elwood Blues, 
yes. Dan Aykroyd's <laughs> character from the Blues Brothers. Oh, that's that was one of my favorite movies as a kid. And, and what's funny is I had a cat named Elwood, my first uh, cat. Yeah. And my partner now, she told me that when she was a little girl, she used to think that, oh, if I ever have like a child and it's a son, I want to name him Elwood. <laughs> really? And so... But we, you know, we're not going to have kids, so we have that in common with each other. Yeah, both <laughs> inspired by Elwood Blues. No, no, I think mine was. I think hers was inspired from where she grew up, right outside of, uh, like in Clackamas County. She was in a little tiny town called Elwood. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're gonna hear Suicide Blonde, which was supposedly inspired by Michael Hutchins's girlfriend at the time he wrote this, Kylie Minogue. Ooh actress slash singer yeah yep. she did that duet with nick cave that's so good yeah yeah i don't think i know that one. Oh, yeah it's a good one do you know what it's called um where the wild ferns grow okay yeah i think <laughs> yeah. there's a book called that too yeah or yeah. something yeah that's about some dogs i believe oh okay i think this was about like a young lady who is killed by an old guy okay that sounds yeah. right <laughs> yeah i'll check that out and yeah i guess Ky- kylie minogue had dyed her hair platinum blonde for a film role Around this time, and uh, there you go. Suicide. Suicide being that she dyed her hair. Her hair oh, dyed. That's what the yes. Yes. Is. Bad pun, but yeah. you know, if you don't actually know what it's referring to, then you just go, all right, Suicide Blonde sounds cool. Yeah, it sounds kind of punk. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, here we go. Suicide Blonde. Suicide Blonde. It's the color of her hair. Like a cheap distraction for me and fair. She finish. It's definitely different than Kick. Yeah. Yeah. To me, this sounds like it's got all the in excess elements. Yes. It's clearly an in excess song. Yeah. It sounds, you know, it sounds tight, mm-hmm. but it kind of comes off to me as like a less good new sensation or something. Yeah. I was thinking of new sensation. It almost sounds like they took that song and they're like, how do we make this into like a disco song mm-hmm. or something? There's like voices going on, a lot of things going on. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And actually, the, uh, the harmonica, Charlie Musselwhite. Yeah. In this song, that's his harmonica, but it's actually a sample of one of his other songs. Oh, weird. So, in, yeah, in, in other songs on the album, he's actually, he came in and played live. But on this one, they're sampling his harmonica for some reason. Wow, interesting. Were there any other hits from that album? Oh, yeah. They had two more modern rock hits off this album. Disappear and Bitter Tears were both top 10 modern rock hits. Okay, yeah. I think I was checked out at this point in excess. <laughs> yeah. I think they're kind of coasting on their previous success here. Yeah. So, yeah, it was okay. If you really love In Excess, you probably like that song just fine. But I don't think it was winning over too many new fans. No. So Michael Hutchins, lead singer, he died in 1997. And the popular rumor, and what I thought was totally true until I started doing research, was that he died by autoerotic asphyxiation. I remember hearing that as well. And apparently that's not true. So I'm going to I'm here to set the record straight okay. perhaps. He was found in a hotel room and he was strangled. But the police investigation they said suicide by heavy drug use, depression mm. and just straight up strangulation. At the time, 1997, Michael Hutchins was dating a woman who 
had been married to Bob Geldof of the Boomtown Rats. Okay. And Michael Hutchins had a child with her. And while Michael Hutchins was on tour, he wanted his girlfriend and daughter to come visit for Christmas. And Bob Geldof set up a court injunction of some kind and said the daughter couldn't travel. And that supposedly set off some depression because he was not going to be able to see his daughter. And he went a little overboard on the drugs. And so the impression I got is that Michael Hutchins' girlfriend, Paula Yates, she did not want the daughter to grow up thinking it was in any way her fault. Mm -hmm. So she concocted the story that it was autoerotic asphyxiation, which... It seems really bizarre. Could have framed it a little differently. Yeah, could yeah. have come up with something, right? Yeah. Seemed, I don't. I don't know if that was also done out of anger or I, who knows. I can't even speculate on the motive there, really. But yeah. um, from from everything I could find, it seems like this is just a rumor and not not what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Polly Yates ended up dying of a heroin overdose. Not too many years later, and oh. Bob Geldof ended up taking custody of Michael Hutchins's daughter. So, strange and kind of heartbreaking musical connection there. Yeah, I hope she's getting some therapy now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a downer. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> so I guess uh, slightly less downbeat. Uh, in 2004, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a TV show called Rockstar. Was that? Yes, Rockstar in Excess. That was the first season. Oh, yeah. I watched that. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it was basically the rest of In Excess minus Michael Hutchins, and they were looking for a new lead singer, and they were having like a television competition yeah. where people would sing and audition to be the new lead singer. Mm-hmm. And the reason I bring this up is because the co-host of Rockstar In Excess was Dave Navarro. That's right. Guitarist from Jane's Addiction. That's right. That show was ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I did not see it. But for anyone who cares, the contest was won by J.D. Fortune, who fronted in excess until 2011. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So uh, Suicide Blonde at the top for one week. And then in the final week of September, we have a new number one. And this time it's The Cure. Yes. Cure fan? I would say The Cure are probably my favorite band. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's interesting because I remember very distinctly hearing their song, Just Like Heaven. And I remember it would come on the radio and it didn't sound like any of the other songs that they played on the radio. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what it was at the time, but I loved it. I knew all the words right away. I got so excited when it came on. And then when I got into high school, like I noticed the other people who wore like shirts of The Cure and stuff. And I was like, oh, that band probably sucks. (laughs) (laughs) But I was really into Camus, the French uh, writer. And he had a book called The Stranger. Mm -hmm. And someone, my girlfriend at the time was like, oh, do you know that band The Cure has a song based on The Stranger? Killing an Arab. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, oh, interesting. So I checked them out and I just like fell in love with them and... Probably more than any other band, you know, I listened to them yesterday. Like, I listen to them all the time. And I finally saw them live last year, and uh, we got really good seats, like about 10 rows up. And just as soon as they started playing, I just kind of, like, crumpled. I was, like, crying, and I just, like, lost. Like, I was, like, I'm really glad I'm not standing, like, in the crowd because yeah. I was, like, yeah. I need to hold on to the chair. And so, yeah, it was a really moving experience. Cool. Did you goth it up at all? Get some eyeliner and... (laughs) 
you know, I love all that type of music and I love when people like dress up and, mm-hmm. you know, and all that. I've always been really been into it, but I've never really done it myself. Yeah. I used to just wear like black hoodie and pants. Now I wear a little color, but yeah, yeah I've never been much of a showman of the goth. Sure. Sure. <laughs> you know, I could be misremembering this, but I feel like I bought Cure Singles album back in 2000. 1 2002 something like that and i feel like it had a sticker on it that was like a disclaimer that killing an arab is not about any kind of anti-arab anti-muslim sentiment and that they wanted to distance themselves from that yeah and that's probably good i mean i feel like that's i mean especially right now it's, it's such a sensitive thing and um I feel weird even saying the name of the song. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's based on that book by Albert Camus. And that book is kind of about like racism and and like kind of xenophobia and the situation that was like in in Morocco where they're at, where there was a lot of racism towards Arabs. And so it's like a literary reference, but just kind of out of context, I could see where people would be like, whoa, what's this song about? (laughs) It's about a guy who, you know, made an unfortunate choice and is sitting in prison, like contemplating his life. Yeah. And waiting to uh, be executed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a while since I read that one. But yeah, it's a good book. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so The Cure was formed in England in 1976. They are often described as a goth band, but, you know, it's not a great label. They, they have really sugary, poppy songs. They've got super gloomy, depressing songs. They've mm-hmm. got all kinds of different stuff. Yeah. Yeah. They're led by Robert Smith. He's the only constant member of the band throughout its entire run. Mm-hmm. So in 1990, The Cure released an album called Mixed Up, which was intended as a way to have a little fun after their super dark but extremely successful album, Disintegration. And Mixed Up features dance remixes of many earlier Cure hits, as well as one new single to get people to buy it. The single's called Never Enough. It was number one on the modern rock charts for three non-consecutive weeks. Okay. (laughs) And uh, let's just listen to it. Never Enough. Here it is. Was it enough? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's definitely not one of my favorite Curious yeah. songs by like a long shot. But what I really like about it is it it sounds like they're having a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And so it definitely sounds different than a lot of other Cure songs, which yeah. sound like, you know, pretty melancholy. Yeah. And they're playing a lot with panning and different things going on. It's fun to listen to it with headphones. Yeah. But kind of like that In Excess song, it, it just kind of doesn't really go anywhere. Yeah. I agree. Do you feel like this was a necessary stopgap between Disintegration and their next album so that Cure fans wouldn't be too uh, shocked or jarred? Yeah, definitely in the context like that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I could see where they're like, get ready, guys. (laughs) We're going to do something a little different. So this is very dancey. Yeah. And this whole Madchester thing is happening. It hasn't totally taken off, but we're seeing this first wave of it. Stone Roses had a hit earlier in the year and Happy Mondays are showing up on the charts and all this other stuff. So I'm wondering, were they influenced by that? Are they jumping in on on that kind of similar dance rock sort of thing? Or I kind of get that impression. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to say, but 
you said the rest of that album is like remix stuff. Mm-hmm. And then that song, I mean, that song sounds like a remix too, basically. Yeah. So I think it was really probably just to get them in the clubs and stuff, like people dancing to it. And, right. Yeah. Dance music's what the people want. Yeah. And anything sounds good on XC, so yeah. let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Cure, I thought this was interesting. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This year, yep. like just right now, yep. pretty much, uh, 2019, despite being eligible since 2004, they had only received one previous nomination in 2012. I guess if you think about the type of rock bands that tend to get nominated, that makes sense. Yeah. But considering the vast number of hits that The Cure had and how important they seem to be, it, oh yeah, I'm, I'm kind of shocked. I'm kind of shocked too, but I've learned to like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rock and roll I work home. in the music industry. Sure, I know how those course. people are. Of course. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, that's our that's our four songs. Some great bands, but maybe not their, their not their strongest songs. Yeah. Yeah. But that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're seeing we're seeing kind of the demise of uh, a certain type of music uh in excess, kind of nearing the end of their uh their win streak. The cure they'll be back, they'll have some more big yeah, ones. Oh yeah. But um I think the majority of their great work is behind them at this point. Yeah. You know, and then we got stuff like Jane's Addiction, which is ushering in a whole new thing. Oh, yeah. Which will be showing up soon. And I'm sure there's someone out there who's saying, you guys are idiots. <laughs> Suicide Pond was In Excess's best song. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Kylie Minogue. Is yeah. Gonna... They can leave uh, bad reviews on, uh, yeah. on uh, iTunes or whatever. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, yeah. Did you notice anything? It just seemed like a really transitional time. Mm-hmm. You know, like definitely the 80s are over, but the 90s haven't really like completely swung in. Like Nirvana isn't really around yet. Well, I mean, they probably are, but... Yeah, they haven't They haven't big. broke. Yeah, and it's interesting. Even with like The Cure, when I was getting ready to see them live, I was like going back through their discography. And I realized there were like two albums I had never heard of really? before. So it's kind of fun especially with like the new era of like Spotify and stuff where it's like, oh, I could actually go and listen to this whole discography instead of just hearing whatever is like on the radio Mm -hmm. or on TV or whatever. Right. And similarly, I do a lot of CD shopping now because Mm -hmm. I can go to used store and get them for like a dollar or $2. And it's when we're buying CDs for $15 or whatever back in the day, it was too expensive to take a chance, you know, to take that risk. But Spotify, essentially free Mm -hmm. or, you know, dollar CDs or whatever, like you can do that. You can just try out stuff. Try before you buy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when I was a teenager, it was like record reviews were really important. Mm -hmm. And even going to the record store, the one I went to in Colorado, the clerks would write little like descriptions of the albums. And that's like what I relied on in high school, like going in and being like, okay, this sounds interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's how I discovered a lot of albums exactly. that I love. Yeah. 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 Well, um, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, it's been fun. And all you listeners out there, check out Kill Rockstars. Yeah, it sounds like they've got some cool stuff coming out. They've got a lot of good stuff in their back catalog. Oh, yeah, tons of records. <laughs> yeah. And uh, thanks to all you who are listening. If you would like to uh, write an angry <laughs> an angry email telling us that we're wrong about uh, Suicide Blonde, you can reach me at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. And real quick before we go, I have an update to this episode. A sharp-eared listener wrote in and let me know that he did not recognize the version of the Railway Children's Every Beat of the Heart that we played, and that's because we accidentally played a version from their 2003 album Gentle Sound, which was a bunch of acoustic covers of older songs of theirs. So, I apologize for that. 
And I would like to make amends by ending this episode with the original single version of Every Beat of the Heart. Unfortunately, James is not here to comment on the song with me, but I would like to say that this version makes a lot more sense as a number one modern rock hit. It is more upbeat. Clearly, there's some New Order influence. It sounds much more of the times and sounds much more like a single. So here it is, the actual version of Every Beat of the Heart that we should have played originally. Thanks for listening and see you in October 1990.